Welcome to Alec Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today, we're sitting down with some of our friends at the Foundation for Government Accountability to talk about reforms to balance budgets. Right now, during COVID-19, getting this right is even more important now than ever. State budgets are already facing the fire today, and during COVID-19, they're facing it even worse. Joining me to discuss this is first Alex Own, EVP for Policy, Jonathan Williams. Jonathan, thank you so much for calling in. Absolutely. Good to be back with you on the podcast. Always. And joining us from our friends at FGA, first is Roy Leonardson, Director of Government Affairs at FGA. Uh, Roy, thanks so much for zooming in here for the podcast. Thank you. And Scott Centrino, Senior Fellow at FGA. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Of course. So start it off with us. Talk to us. Why is this so important for legislators to lead? Is there a missing element? Why is this something that legislators need to realize it's on their plate to deal with? Yeah, well, I, th- I think your opening was right on the money here. It's They are facing budget Armageddons in almost every single state in this country, as, as you just said. I mean, we, we have folks that are looking at 15 to 20 percent upward to, I think, in Scott, in your state, in Louisiana, it was as high as? Almost 50 percent. Yeah, almost 50 percent. So the, the numbers are extraordinary and unprecedented. And, you know, I had the misfortune, if you will, of working in the legislative branch for almost 25 years. And so I saw the recession in the early 90s. I saw it again, uh, the dot-com bubble. I saw it again with the housing bubble. And so I think this is going to be one of those um, sort of events that occur in the legislative process. And I think for me, one of the, the, the thing I hope to Uh, help with today is to prepare legislators to lead. What is going to happen is this when you get back. You're going to be driven by the executive branch that is frantically trying to make ends meet and balance your state budget as many are required to do by their constitutions. That means you'll spend all your time looking at spreadsheets and line items of how to cut 15 up to 20%, I think we saw in Ohio, 7 billion in Washington. So all of your time is going to be directed at dancing to the tune of the executive branch. I think what Scott and I hope to talk to today is to how to use that as a leverage item to have those conversations with the executive branch, but at the very same time, begin to make systemic changes in how you deliver government services as a part of the deal so that in the next 10 years, you put your budget on the right course forever. So if the governor needs a cut here or something change here, we need to change the way we deliver welfare or the way we provide unemployment insurance. There are literally dozens of things that legislators could do to change the system while negotiating specific budget line items. So for us, that's why we're in it. You know, there's a couple of things you want to copy today. I want to pass it off to Scott as one is just to give people a quick update of the federal problem we have. It's the handcuff situation. And I think Scott and I wanted to jump into three or four of the top sort of the best ideas for systemic changes that the exec, that the legislative branch can lead and force the executive branch's hand. So I'll let Scott, if you don't, if it's okay, take it away for a little bit about what's happening at the federal level and what legislators need to know. Yeah, no, thanks, Roy. It, it's really hard to overstate how big of a problem this is. It's probably the the biggest problem facing states right now that it seems like nobody's talking about except for us sometimes. But it's, it's the handcuffs that you're talking about. And just to take a step back for a moment, even before COVID, states were facing a really big problem in terms of an unsustainable trajectory of welfare programs, in particular, Medicaid. In almost every state, Medicaid is the biggest line item in your state budget. And in almost every state, 
I think in every state, that line item has only been growing, 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 no matter what what they do, it seems like. And so this was a huge problem even before COVID, but it's obviously become a much bigger one now. And so the first thing that I think folks need to understand is what Congress has done to states. And and it really is a handcuff. It's it's an apt metaphor. Um, So the short version, obviously this is complex, but the short version is in the first Coronavirus Response Act, part of the big compromise that was done in D.C. was states got some extra funding for their Medicaid programs, a 6% boost. And in exchange for that 6% boost in funding, uh, they could not make any changes in their program. They could not remove anyone from from the roles, even if they commit fraud, even if they become ineligible. I I think it's probably worth repeating just because the first time you hear that, it doesn't even compute. If you were on Medicaid from March 18th on, or you come on to Medicaid, and you're, let's just take Michigan. I know some of the folks on this call are from Michigan. Michigan cannot remove someone from Medicaid, even if they go back to work, even if they become ineligible, even if they commit fraud. And so it's just this one-way revolve, or it's this, it's this one-way turnstile that doesn't revolve in the other way. It's just, you come in and it's like the Hotel California, you check in, but you can't leave. And so not only was Medicaid on an unsustainable trajectory before COVID, but basically you have these handcuffs placed on state budgets where they can't do anything right now except explode. It's like this ticking time bomb that's just, states are forced to absorb and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, the issues that arise from federal government overreach onto the states is something that Alec uh, has covered here on the podcast extensively and also something our our members are very aware of and frankly that they don't like it. We've recently been circulating uh, a letter signed by over 200 state legislators calling on Congress to not pass a bailout of the states. And I want to loop in Jonathan here a little bit to first go ahead and give our audience a breakdown on what this letter says, why it's important. And then also, if you can talk a little bit about what would happen if there was uh, a bailout of the states, because this really ties in nicely to the handcuffs that the federal government will put on states. Because a lot of times, at least we've seen it in the past with uh, bailouts, they come with requirements. Well, absolutely. And, And this is really an existential issue for those of us who believe in federalism and limited government, two of the three ALEC guiding principles, as you know, Dan. And this is uh, it's an issue I've been working on on uh, these state financial issues now for 15 years. I was involved with the issue around the Obama bailout of states in 2009. That was back when our national debt was in the range of $10 trillion and everyone thought there was a big problem with the debt, and there was. Now we're approaching $30 trillion in national debt. We have seen states continually lose autonomy to the federal government uh, in a way by being bribed with their own taxpayers' dollars sent to Washington, D.C., and then redistributed back with a hefty cut taken from the federal government. And then some of these really ridiculous handcuffs, as the gentleman we're talking about earlier, being put onto states to take extra federal aid, and whether that was round one round two, round three of the uh, the coronavirus response. Now we're hitting round four in Washington, and the discussion is around even more federal dollars going to states in order to bail out state, local, and uh, other units of government, for, and in many cases, for uh, some real problems that those governments have instituted over the course of not this coronavirus response, but over the course of decades. When you look at states like 
Illinois, for instance, a state that always ranks poorly uh, in any free market measurement of the states, including our own rich states, poor states, a state that has seen mass out-migration because of its business climate being uh, just so underperforming. And then you see it, that's a state that has a rainy day fund, gentlemen, that would last a grand total of 15 minutes of general operations. This is clearly a state that has over-promised under-delivered, and has followed this uh, approach of just looking to Washington, D.C. to solve state problems that they have created in Springfield for many, many years, if not decades. And here's another newsflash. Just because you federalize a problem doesn't mean it goes away, right? And so the underlying cause of many of these states' issues has been overspending and then kind of passing the buck, really, to socialize their costs off on the rest of the country. It creates this massive moral hazard problem for states to do the wrong thing and then come to Uncle Sam, which is read all of us as taxpayers and ask for us to pick up the tab. So I'm very concerned about what could potentially happen with up to maybe another trillion dollars headed to state and local governments that will put off many of these really important policy reforms uh, that the gentleman today will be talking about to find efficiencies for states to provide really those core services that are needed as a social safety net, but to make sure that those uh, areas of the budget are limited and taxpayers are also protected. So we definitely don't want that. But let's talk about what we do want. Let's talk about some solutions. I mean, what can state lawmakers or maybe specific states themselves, what can they do? Because that's really what I know our audience and our listeners want to hear from us are proactive, productive next steps. Remember what the problem is fundamentally, not just at the federal level, but it's in the state level as well. What we are seeing is fraud by design, okay? That's an important concept to understand. You are seeing deliberately fraudulent activity put into law to make it okay to commit fraud, okay? And that's what we're trying to end. I think the first thing for us is you remember in the 90s, when we had our first set of welfare reforms that came through with Clinton and Newt Gingrich, and they passed a number of those things. A lot of folks think that we accomplished that and we can kind of move on on some of the welfare fraud and reform stuff. Well, we can't. And one of the things we're going to talk about first, and I'll have Scott jump in, is this notion that work requirements, which are the best way to get people back to work, is actually require them to do so. Um, we need to make that across the welfare programs and statewide. And Scott can outline for you that why it's not happening, where it's not happening, and what we can do about it. Yeah, so like Roy said, this is the single best thing you can do in your welfare programs, not only for to save your budget by reducing enrollment in welfare programs, but also just from a moral standpoint. Getting people back into work is a good thing. It's good for your economy. It's good for families and all that. So work requirements are totally inconsistent in every state. So I'll, I'll continue to pick on Michigan here for a moment. So your four biggest welfare programs in Michigan, you've got Medicaid, you've got public housing, you've got food stamps, and you've got cash welfare, traditional cash welfare. So if I'm a a 30-year-old childless adult male in the state of Michigan, and I apply for these programs, and I'm accepted into these programs, if I enter Medicaid, even though I'm able-bodied and working age, I don't need to work, train, or even volunteer part-time. I have no requirement if I'm in housing. If I'm on food stamps, it depends on the county. So there's a lot of, of counties in Michigan that have waived the federal work requirement. That's a, that's a little known policy dispute that, that a lot of folks have not paid attention to. There's a federal mandate in food stamps that, that there must be a work requirement, but tons of states have abused waivers, and, and Michigan is, is one of those states. So 
and in a lot of counties in Michigan, uh, I don't have to work even if I'm on food stamps. The only program in which I'm required to work, train, or volunteer even part-time is the smallest of the four, the cash welfare program. And that's what you all think of with, with welfare reform in the 90s and President Clinton and Speaker Gingrich. But that was just one small sliver of the welfare pie. And you look at a state like Michigan, I mean, that's actually a good example because not to get too wonky here, but Michigan's facing a budget shortfall of over $2 billion this year. Just those federal handcuffs on Medicaid alone are going to cost Michigan over $4 billion. And so this welfare reform is a huge deal. It's not just trimming at the margins here. And work requirements are the single best thing you can do. And, and I'll just add as well, just I know some of the listeners will be interested. They're obviously, they're enormously popular across the board. You get strong majorities of Republicans, independents, and Democrats support work requirements. Um, and that's that's something that I think comes from their flexibility. People understand that even in even in a bad economy, even when there's uncertainty, because it's flexible, because you can work or you can train or volunteer. Let's say you have a kid in school, you can just go volunteer at the school where your kid attends, assuming they're still open. That's another topic. But people understand that work requirements are flexible and they can meet this moment. Can I just add, so you know, there is an issue with work requirements right now that they, in some jurisdictions, they have been suspended. What you need to do is to get ready because they're going to happen. They were suspended on process and technicalities, not on the content itself. So I don't know if, Scott, you just want to just help people understand that you're going to get some pushback, but you should push back even harder because. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. Across the nation, the default right now with the COVID pandemic is is suspension of work requirements in these programs. So whether a state has the work requirement in place or not, it's good practice to get ready to get them back into the game, to get work requirements back onto the books if they don't exist or if if they've been suspended. So that's really one of the best things you can do. Aside from getting the handcuffs off, which we should probably mention, state legislators, obviously, they have a voice and and reaching out to their, their friends and allies in D.C. to get these handcuffs removed, obviously, would, would do a great deal as well. Yeah. And remember, I think from a legislator's perspective, this is not this does not impact the elderly. This does not impact the disabled. This is not about women that are pregnant or with young children still at home. This is really a very particular, it goes back to this fraud by design. It's a class of folks who are 18 to 49 or 18 to 64, depending on the, on the number, um, who are completely able to work but are making a choice not to do so on many of these programs. And so that's really the first target that I think needs to go after that um, and, and interrupt me. But I just, I wanted to say that, you know, Arkansas went ahead and did this and it was an extraordinary experiment until the, you know, the leftovers from the deep state sort of got in there and tried to shut it down on process. But Scott, you want to just talk about what happened? And, and by the way, Asa Hutchinson, the governor there completely supports it and is going to put it right back on as soon as he can. But Scott, just explain to the folks listening what the results were. And these are actual results. Yeah. So I, Roy, I think you're talking about the Medicaid work. Yeah. Requirement. The next issue. Sorry. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, this, this is a big deal. Uh, obviously, some folks are, are worried that the Medicaid work requirement in some states has been held up in some in courts and there's some legal uncertainty. And that, that's obviously in the case of Arkansas, is something that they've run into. But Arkansas was a place where the work requirement for, eight, like Roy said, limited to able-bodied working-age adults was actually put into place. So it's not just abstract theory. Arkansas saw it. They saw the results. So just in the short time when Arkansas implemented a work requirement for able-bodied adults in Medicaid, almost 140,000 people left the program, and 87% of them 
left because they had increased incomes or for reasons other than failure to comply with the requirement. So it works. And, you know, I hate to be so glib about this, but it's not surprising that it works. Work requirements work. They've worked for decades now. It's not really a shocking revelation. And so the fact that they worked is not surprising. These work requirements work in Medicaid and they will work in other states, both in terms of reducing enrollment in this moment, but also in terms of getting people back into the workforce, whether it's a good economy or a bad one. Um, And so states, Arkansas is obviously not the only one that submitted that waiver. They were just the only one to get it going before a court paused it. And like Roy said, there's there's some political shenanigans going on there. But 18 states, I think, have submitted a waiver. States are not alone in, in trying this out. And I think we're going to see some resolution on this legally pretty pretty soon here. So hopefully this is something that states can can get ahead of the game on. And by the way, Dan, just so your listeners know, we put all of this on an ALEC website. We did it on www.thefga.org slash ALEC, A-L-E-C. Everything Scott and I are talking about is right there. Just go to FGA slash ALEC and all example of the waivers, all the reports, the studies, legislation, it's all right there, all the sources and the data and a detailed state-by-state analysis. So at any point, all 10 of our ideas are there. We're only going to get to three today, but it's all right there on our slash ALEC page on the FGA uh, homepage. And for our listeners, we will be sure to link that in the show notes. So if you're interested in checking it out, feel free to scroll down. It should be there right now. Underpinning this entire issue is the problem of state budgets and state revenues falling. You look at the economy, just look at the market in general, go ahead and pull up Wall Street. It's not doing too hot. Downstream from that, it seems pretty obvious that state revenues are going to fall as well. And that's really, you know, not only should state budgets get balanced anyways, but right now when state revenues are going to be plummeting, it's even doubly important. So talk to our listeners a little bit about, you know, what's going to happen. I mean, what's the forecast for state revenues and why is this such an important issue for state legislators to take up now? Well, Dan, this is Jonathan here. And just from a kind of a macro perspective, I mean, we expect anywhere in the range of, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars or more in fiscal 21 uh, budget shortfalls, uh, mostly related directly to coronavirus effects and the government shutdowns of state economies. And of course, they're all over the map. Oil and gas states have been hit much harder because of the global downturn in energy prices. And uh, so Scott's uh, Louisiana, as well as uh, Oklahoma, Texas, North Dakota, Alaska, Wyoming, you know, you name the states that are energy heavy, and they're going to see an absolutely extra impact of what's going on. Now, I do think you're also going to see a sorting out of really states based on how open they were to having a discussion about a safe and tiered reopening of their economies versus the states, let's say, that uh, had shut down everything across the board uh, without any nod to safe versus unsafe and degrees of safety or even areas of the state and have just issued statewide uh, shutdowns of certain sectors of the economy. And so I think a lot of this will still obviously play out. I think some of the results that have come in over the last couple of months have been a little bit more encouraging than some of the trend lines we had expected or started to see in March and uh, in April. But one phenomenon to keep in mind here is while we get regular sales tax collection updates, 
almost every state with a personal income tax delayed their tax filing and payment deadlines to July 15th. And so we expect a very delayed data uh, delivery when it comes to income tax collections this year versus other years. Now, that being said, it really does open up a wide array of potential solutions for legislators. Obviously, we at Alex hope that they tackle inefficiencies and find savings in state budgets and address many of the things that FGA is talking about in terms of delivering the services in a more effective way and getting rid of waste, fraud, and abuse. We have a great resource called the State Budget Reform Toolkit that we can link up to in in the notes as well that many of you are familiar with, with about 25 different budget savings ideas, both in the short term and the long term. But I do think one of the other things we're going to really have to keep an eye on is this desire by some to use this crisis or let's say never let a crisis go to waste and have it be in a permanent expansion of government or government taxation. You know, we see this desire kind of of states to chase the quote-unquote free lunch that we know is never free based on the uh, principles of Milton Friedman, but they've been told that Medicaid expansion under Obamacare in places like Missouri or Oklahoma that have considered it on the ballot this year is going to be the panacea to save their state budget. And obviously, it's going to take much more hard work. And based on the great data from FGA, we know that the cost overruns of the states that have expanded Medicaid under Obamacare have just been tremendously over what expectations were. So I think we have to be very careful on solutions going forward, but we have a great set at ALEC, the State Budget Reform Toolkit, to everybody check out. So I know I'm guilty of this myself. I think a lot of folks on the right, center right, in times like this especially, can kind of put on a green visor and kind of get into the budget numbers. And that's obviously incredibly important. And it's exactly what good leaders should be doing in this moment. But I, I don't want legislators or anyone to forget that there is a heart to this story, that in in states, particularly in Medicaid, but across welfare programs, in states that expand, in states that do not prioritize getting able-bodied adults out of welfare and back into work, those are states that have longer waiting lists for people who are truly needy. Those are states that have waiting lists for people who are homebound, they're in a wheelchair, they wear helmets. I mean, they're just terrible situations where folks desperately need help and they can't get it because able-bodied adults have been moved to the front of the line. I'll pick on Michigan one last time here. There are waiting lists for housing in Michigan right now that are over 10 years long. And there are people who are disabled, people who are seniors on those waiting lists, while at the same time, people who are young, who could work or at least volunteer and work their way out of welfare and poverty are getting benefits. And so, yes, welfare reform helps with your budget. Absolutely. It's critical that states look at these options in this time. But it's also good policy because it's good for people both the people who escape welfare and the people who are prioritized for benefits within welfare. It's putting people back to the front of the line that should be there. For example, nursing homes haven't been properly funded for decades in many states. Home care workers who go and visit the home pound haven't seen a raise or any increase in reimbursements for more than a decade. So Scott's exactly right. I, I know we're short for time, and we sort of talked about the work requirements across welfare programs, work requirements for Medicaid. I do want to touch on welfare fraud, or yeah. let's call it welfare program integrity. Look, we built a terrific safety net in a lot of states, right? And a safety net is what sort of this moral compact that we have with one another to protect the most needy. The problem is, is the safety net is completely under assault by those who don't share your values. I mean, 
we've got a lot of studies. I'm going to have um, Scott talk a little bit more about it. But again, Arkansas took a leading role in this. They found 80,000 people on their roles that didn't even live in Arkansas. Illinois found 14,000 dead people that were still receiving benefits in that state. So I think that the program integrity is absolutely critical. And Scott, if you just want to touch on some of the highlights of that, that's one thing. We've got all the legislation for you on the Slash Alec website. It's been tremendously successful in the states. And I'll have Scott go into a little more detail. Yeah, I'll, I'll be very brief. This falls into the category of if you tell somebody on the street about this, they'll be shocked to know that it isn't already done. So all we're talking about here is when somebody applies for welfare across these programs, the state program administering that welfare should check state data that it already collects. So when you're administering welfare benefits, when you're looking at applications, when you're redetermining people's eligibility, it just makes sense that if the state already spends money to collect information on lottery winners, death records, marriage records, wage records, incarceration records, the state has all this data collected, but nobody's just checking the extra Excel box on their spreadsheet to make sure that somebody isn't dead or in prison or their income hasn't gone up. This is basic. And you know we get pushback all the time about how much money this is going to cost departments for implementation. It's bogus. You know, At most, there'll be a marginal cost. We've seen states implement this without hiring a single additional worker. But more than anything, uh, I just want to reiterate, with good program integrity, you will save so much more money than you end up spending on just checking one extra spreadsheet to make sure that people are eligible. And that, that's money well spent if you end up saving uh, a huge amount more. I mean, it's going to dwarf the the actual expenditure that it requires. So this is this is basic common sense stuff. Really appreciate that. Yeah, I just have to. This is one of my favorites, and I'm going to have Scott talk about it. It's got the most wonky name ever. It's called BBCE, which is Broad Based Categorical Eligibility. It's a long wonky name, but it's absolutely infuriating um, what's going on. It's more of that fraud by design. Scott, can you explain what BBC is? is and the loophole and why we need to fix it. Yeah, just just really quick again. So the BBCE loophole is, is it's truly maddening. And like you said, a lot of folks are not aware of it. And it's just a, it's a huge deal. So there are about 5 million people on food stamps across America. That number's probably gone up since COVID who are actually ineligible for food stamps under federal guidelines because of the BBCE loophole. And a majority of states use this loophole to basically juice their enrollment numbers at the expense of of other governments. And so the short version is someone applies for welfare. I'll take Colorado as an example because I was looking at this earlier today. Somebody in Colorado applies for food stamps and the department in Colorado will hand the applicant a piece of paper saying you may be eligible for cash welfare. And because that piece of paper telling them that they may be eligible for cash welfare is printed on paper funded by the cash welfare program, that person applying for food stamps is automatically eligible for food stamps without having to undergo an asset check. And what that means practically, and we've seen it before, there are good stories, Rob Understander, the Minnesota millionaire, where people who have millions of dollars in assets walk in, apply for food stamps, and get food stamp benefits because their assets simply are not checked. There's a long sorted history of how it got to this place. It came from a place of trying to reduce administrative duplication, but it has gone way out of whack across the country and it's costing millions and millions of dollars. Again, fraud by design. Legislators need to know that. And one final thing, you're going to get departments and agencies telling you that we already do this. And I think Scott said it nicely that that's bogus. 
I think you need to, if you've got um, executive branch agencies telling you that we already do this, I think the appropriate response from legislators is that's wonderful. We're going to go ahead and pass a bill, codify it to protect your great work and watch them turn ghost white after you say that. So don't let them get away with it. If they say they already do it, then let's put it in law and make it permanent so it doesn't have to change from administration to administration. Call their bluff because they're making it up. Well, that does bring us to the end of our segment today. We've been giving you a lot of productive, action-oriented things our listeners can either look more into if you want to check out those links in the show notes or take action on if you're a state legislator. I've been sitting down with Roy Lennerson, Director of Government Affairs at the Foundation for Government Accountability. Roy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And remember, thefga.org slash Alec. It's all right there. And we'll be sure to link that in the show notes as well. And also Scott Centorino, Senior Fellow at FGA. Thank you so much for calling in, Scott. Thanks. It's been fun. Yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you. And as always, we always have for our state budget conversations, Executive Vice President for Policy at ALEC, Jonathan Williams. Jonathan, thanks so much for calling in on this podcast today. Absolutely. It's a bit doom and gloom right now, but we're glad we got some solutions out there for everybody to look into. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Definitely. That's what we're here for. And if you're interested in having your ideas featured on Alec Across the States, do not hesitate to email me at acrossthestates at alec.org. And please rate us wherever you find your podcasts. It helps us get seen and find us more listeners. Thank you so much. I'm Dan Reynolds, your host. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.